How about you? You look like a weakling. You miss it and it's on you. Which you could also find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. What's going on, everybody? Happy December. So glad to have you with us for Rearview Movies. We're here to look at old movies with new eyes. I've got my co-pilots, Heather and Trevor, with me. And uh, everybody getting ready? Get your Christmas shopping done? No. I've done a ton, actually. Oh, for the kids. I got like two things and that's about it. So, and that will stay that way until mm, the 24th, probably. <laughs> 24th around four o'clock. We probably get out. Typical yeah, mail. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when you're a parent and you're Christmas shopping, it's a little dangerous because if you Christmas shop it too early, mm-hmm. then the kid, everything the kid wants changes. It's like preparing yeah. for a movie with script rewrites. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, since it's December, we're going to be having a little conversation about Christmas movies here. Our subject film is Trading Places, which I would say stretches the definition of what you would call a Christmas movie per se. But then let's open the conversation. Uh, Trevor, top five Christmas movies. Well, I know what you want to hear, right? You're going to want me to say Die Hard, right? And I'm not here to discuss the merits of what makes Christmas movie and what doesn't. You know, no, I'll, I'll handle that part. Don't worry. Is is it a Christmas movie because it takes place at Christmas, or is it a Christmas movie because it actually has to do with themes and the spirit of Christmas and stuff like that? So I'm not going to get into that right now. And I'm obviously Die Hard would be number one, right? But I'm not going to say that. So that's just <laughs> the easy answer. So for me, it starts with it starts with Christmas Vacation. Like I don't think it gets any better than that. <laughs> I watch that every year if I can. I think it's absolutely hilarious and. It's one of those that just never seems to get old. So I'd say that one is up there. Maybe these aren't best, but I guess these are the ones that kind of stand out to me the most when I think about it. Um, And, you know, I have a kid who likes to watch all these Christmas movies, too. So some of the stuff is in there just because I've seen it so many times and they just kind of mean Christmas to me, you know, like so Mm -hmm. I want to say Elf as in there as well. I don't really think that's a great christmas movie but it's it's christmasy and and like my kid loves it so we watch it (laughs) so there it is okay Um, i'll also say with the classics you also have um it's a wonderful life it Mm -hmm. doesn't get much better than that i'll does a christmas movie have to include possible suicide i don't think yeah i mean In this case, it does. <laughs> like so, existential crisis. Like, hey, I'm going to jump off a bridge. No one needs me here. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. open your presents, kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it seems to be that. that that's my hot. That's my hot take. I would it's say. I'm, I'm not sure. It's a wonderful Christmas. life. Is is. But no, you're. But you're exactly right. It, it is associated with Christmas. You're totally right yeah. about that. Well, I think it's a Christmas movie, so I'm going to roll with that one too. Sure, uh, another sure. another sure. one. I'll say. I've only ever seen this one a couple times, and it's really really. Uh, fun um but I'll, I'll mention it just for heather's sake because this is the movie that i guess was the inspiration for you've got mail mm-hmm. um and it's from the 1940s it's called the shop around the corner with oh, um i've heard of that i've yeah, never with, seen it though yeah no it's it's got jimmy stewart in it it's um again you know he's well it's, it's a wonderful life as well but uh yeah i think that's the one that kind of served as some inspiration for you've got mail obviously mm-hmm. not with AOL because this is 1940, but <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, still in that realm there. Um, mm-hmm. So what's that? Is that is that four? I had one for five that I was just thinking of that I was gonna. Oh, I remember. We'll throw a brand new one in there. One okay. that's one that's destined to become a classic in the future years. I just saw the holdovers with Paul Giamatti. It just came out this year. Okay, um, 
pretty much the best thing I've seen this year. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I've not seen everything yet. It's certainly on its way to being a Best Picture nominee, and I think a future Christmas classic. So, hmm. Well, it would certainly be nice to have a movie that's more modern added to that kind of Christmas canon. You know, some of those are 70s, 80s. It's really tough to pull some from the, you know, late 90s, 2000s. So, no, hey, n- n- very few faults with that list. Heather, how about you? Okay, so I have a lot of modern movies on mine. Um, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. I always loved that movie as a kid, and my kids watch it now, and it still makes me laugh. I guess I've just always been a big fan of Tim Allen. Um, There's nothing wrong with that one. That one is so good. It's you know I think one of my favorite things is the way that they the way that they have decorated the workshop and they have really made that come to life. It's so whimsical and creative and fun, and I just think that is definitely one of my favorite parts of that movie mm-hmm. they didn't spare any details there and i think that's it's right really cool the grinch the original uh with boris karloff and here's another one that i always watch with the kids um i don't think i ever saw it before i met scotty but <laughs> my kids have now uh loved this movie and begged to watch it every year jingle all the way with arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> that one is <laughs> that's full of ridiculousness but it's fun. It- it is, but it it's is. it's it fun and, you know, it kind of is the epitome of what Christmas used to be, though, because you didn't have the internet, right? You didn't always have the internet and you couldn't always just find exactly what you needed, right? You had to plan ahead and you had, had to, to go get it, right? Cyber Monday didn't exist. Um, yeah. I would even say the Black Friday cultural idea was kind of in its intimacy at the time. Mm-hmm. Jingle all the way. Um, I really enjoy that film. Uh, I always thought Arnold is underappreciated in his comedic roles. And uh, that was definitely one of them, in my opinion. I think yeah, with with, with Christmas movies, you kind of have to let go a little bit. Yes. You know? Because, I mean, from a critical story filmmaking standpoint, there's really not a whole lot of good in that movie. No. But no, sure. Super duper enjoyable i guess so even i'll let my guard down on some of these sometimes and and that's <laughs> one of them my kid hasn't seen it i want to show it to him though so maybe we'll get to that and another one on my list is home alone and you know that's one of those is it a christmas movie is it not a christmas movie it's not but i always used to watch it around christmas time when i was a kid and my daughter loves it and it's just fun you know and and so it's just one of those that she just kind of get used to watching um, and I'm going to throw a newer one in there that Scotty and I watched last year, 8-Bit Christmas with Neil Patrick Harris, where he and his friends are desperate to get a brand new Nintendo. So that was just a fun one. I really It's, it's a certain one. other Christmas film, except we're going for a Nintendo instead of a weapon. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, di- I didn't see that one, but that was, I, I remember hearing about it. Somebody said it was just throws, it just ups the nostalgia level throughout that entire movie. Right. Does, well, yeah. right. Well, because like there's a certain generation that could appreciate that film. 8-Bit Christmas had a lot of that same nostalgia for, you know, for our generation. Uh-huh. Okay. Well then uh, for my five, I'm going to say uh, number one with a bullet, uh, second place is four miles away is, is a Christmas story. The single best Christmas movie ever made. There's a reason that bad boy has been on TV for 24 hours straight for the last like 20 years. And nobody has said, you know, maybe we should stop that. <laughs> no, they've continued to do it because that film is iconic. Definitely iconic without a doubt. Number two for me, I'm, I would also agree with Trevor on Christmas vacation. I think it's very entertaining. I think it's funny. Jingle all the way is another one that I really, really can't get enough of. And agree with about the Santa Claus. And uh, no, those are those are generally mine. But I would put in that last pitch that I do believe if you're going to call it a Christmas movie, Christmas must be part of the plot. 
Kevin's parents and Home Alone could have been going on summer vacation and the plot of that film doesn't change. Well, that's my argument when when people that do say that is a Christmas movie, that's the argument I usually pivot back and say, okay, well, then Die Hard's a Christmas movie because Home Alone mm-hmm. could have taken place over the, you know, like a Martin Luther King weekend, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Any yeah. weekend where the mall has to close, right? I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll argue that it is a Christmas movie just because it does have that kind of like holiday warmth to it so i'm not saying i'm not saying die hard is or isn't a christmas movie you know because that, that's going to be an argument as old as time by the mm-hmm. you know everyone's going to be talking about it but if it takes place at christmas if there's any little bit of holiday cheer to it then yeah it's a christmas movie and i think there is a little bit of holiday cheer to die hard because how can you not feel all warm and fuzzy watching alan rickman fall off the top of that building <laughs> Oh, not not even my favorite Alan Rickman role, if we're being honest. Well, if we're gonna jump on, then we're gonna talk about movies that that get mentioned as Christmas films because Christmas takes place within the plot of the movie. Let's uh, use that bridge to jump right into our movie. We're gonna talk about Trading Places today from good old 1983, the year of one person in this room's birth. Not uh, not me and not not Heather, but someone's. So I guess we can talk about the basic details. Trevor, tell us about Trading Places. All right. Well, Trading Places, despite everyone calling it the Christmas movie, it actually opened in the summer, June 8th, 1983. This movie is directed by John Landis, who is famous for directing the Blues Brothers. He did some music videos, too. Um, maybe you've seen a couple of his music videos. <laughs> there's, there's one he did called Thriller. Thr- thr- thriller? Thriller, yeah, by some guy named Michael... Johnson Jackson yeah <laughs> he directed the thriller video some uh, dude this, in a red jacket you know yeah this movie stars Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd and it also has Ralph Bellamy Donna Michi Denholm Elliott Jamie Lee Curtis one of her first roles Kristen Holby Paul Gleason and Jim Belushi again Scotty always throws in his music by which is great music by Elmer Bernstein who is a legend one year later from this film's release he will write the iconic score to Ghostbusters ah uh, best teaser ever Mm-hmm. Uh, it's budgeted at $15 million and opened with $7 million in the box office, went on to $90 million gross. And the man himself, Elmer Bernstein, did pull down an Oscar nomination for this movie. Best Music Original Song Score, which is not a category anymore, but uh, it is there. Rotten Tomatoes, the score there is 88. The audience score is 85. It says featuring deft interplay between Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd trading places is an immensely appealing social satire. What a high grade for a movie. I mean, some of the movies we've looked at, what scores in the 50s and 60s, 88. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, 88 is pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah. Especially movies like this, you know, those scores have a chance to really fluctuate because they have a whole lot of reviews over over 40 years that they can pull out and really kind of see where it lands. So Mm -hmm. 40 years of of fluctuations and everything you get 88 which is pretty good the thing with rotten tomatoes is it's all based on what is available so and there's a lot of like newness to things so the newer the movie the higher the score sometimes so like i i mentioned one of the christmas movies on my list was the holdovers and i actually mm-hmm. googled before we sat down best christmas movies ever and one of the articles that came up was rotten tomatoes and it was ranking all these christmas movies based on their rotten tomatoes score and do you know where the holdovers ranks on the hundred 
greatest Christmas movies of all time based on Rotten Tomato scores? Mm. Third. <laughs> With a 95. Now, it's a, great, it's a great movie, you know, but 40 years from now, what's that score going to be? It right. might be a little lower as people have had a chance to really sit back and take stock of it. And that 95 is a lot of real newness. And it. watch it again and again. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I almost wonder what some of these these movies that people think about as the greatest of all time as where they stand. So, you know, The Godfather, Shawshank or Dark Knight, you know, what what are those? How do those still fare on on Rotten Tomatoes? Because I bet you The Dark Knight was like a 98 when it first came out. But now that it's yeah. been almost 10 years, actually 15 years now. Good grief. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wonder how that has settled down. And I'm not going to look at it. We'll just we'll get to that in, in five years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I guess into it then uh, trading places what did we all think the first time we saw this film now i will say the first time we saw this film and that some of us may have been quite young when we saw this film for the first time i was actually pretty young uh these were i think i saw this in cable back in the day and and honestly we could talk about this the film is a little different in cable there's there's a lot of stuff that that is cut out but uh trevor how about you first time you saw this film it was probably on tv i don't know this is probably one of those movies where i saw it once all the way through and then i saw Mm -hmm. bits and pieces of it throughout for the next however many years so i actually don't remember the first time i saw it but it's one of those movies that, you know, you know, you've seen it and you know, you like it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like we do on this show, you sit down again and watch it and have things changed in your opinion. <laughs> you know, we'll see. We'll mm-hmm. find out. Yes, actually. Heather, how about you? First time. So I don't actually remember the first time I saw this. I mean, I'm sure it's one of those things that was kind of always on cable and, you know, you watch bits and pieces of it over the years. And like Trevor said, you know, you've seen it, but you just kind of can't piece it all together. So I don't have a whole lot of recollection other than, yeah, I know I've seen it. I just don't really know when. (laughs) (laughs) Well, time was very kind to this movie because it has an interesting distinction. We we were talking about this a little bit in the previous episode in the lead up. It's one of the few movies to kind of discuss and delve into the financial world because there's not a lot of movies to try to make like stock trading and financial things interesting for the general public in a movie, right? You don't see that in a, in a movie a whole lot of the times. But I did want to point out, because I thought this was very funny, that this movie actually did inspire actual Wall Street regulation to take place. I don't know if you guys saw this. It was part of it. It actually was uh, written into the Dodd-Frank, one of the Dodd-Frank uh, acts, that 27 years after the movie came out in 2010, the head of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission literally talked about it on the floor of Congress and called it the Eddie Murphy rule that people could not use misappropriated government information in trade decisions. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is hard to make the stock market interesting in a movie sometimes. And yet when it works, it works really well. And it works here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think we may have mentioned it last month or two months ago. I think, did we talk about the big short? And I think that does one of the best jobs of of these conversations. It does. Yeah, it does. That's one of my favorites from the last several years. I've watched it numerous times since it's come out. Uh, Wasn't expecting much out of it when I first saw it and was completely blown away by it after it was done. But that's one that really, really does a good job explaining certain things on on how this works. Because a lot of people don't know what shorting a stock is. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, I still don't really understand it a lot. But thanks to Margot Robbie in a bubble bath, I have have a better understanding of such things. (laughs) Well, what's funny is, you know who else did not understand what they were doing? Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. When they did the final scene, Eddie Murphy says it later, that he literally was just like, okay, the script says to say this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. So they had no clue what they were actually doing. And they didn't really even really describe what they were doing in the film. Like it's kind of explained that, you know, you're going to buy low, sell high right before they walk in. And then, you know, after a few minutes of absolute 
absolute chaos. The Duke brothers are broke and Winthorpe and Valentine are not. That's really all they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to say the least. And there's a lot that's going on in there. Like I, how many people knew that there was a, a commodity trade for frozen concentrated orange juice, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. In, my, in my in my day job like i i have to we, we talk a lot about futures commodities and stuff like that but it's not you know it's not anywhere near as obscure as that but yeah that exists there is a <laughs> so that makes me think of my grandparents because my grandparents are the only people i've ever met in my life who bought the frozen concentrated orange juice <laughs> i've bought we've bought that before you, like you mean the physical products not the commodity yes right? the actual <laughs> product itself but it just made me think of them because i was like i don't know anyone else who actually buys that stuff that, that is part of something we teach our kids in uh in, in my senior seminar class about the stock market we actually do a, a, a virtual stock market and what's really funny is one of my kids got an education on shorting because when i started it i didn't even know what it was so i was like oh you want to short something yeah give it a shot see what happens basically you're betting the price is going to go down so one of my kids decides to bet his entire portfolio almost on shorting the s p 500 which if you don't know is an index fund it's one of the cornerstones of the stock market it's usually a key indicator for how the economy is doing. And so he shorted the stock market and he shorted the index fund and lost like everything. He was like, yeah. But anyway, I can literally hear our listeners clicking onto Spotify and picking new songs. So we should totally talk about something else. Yeah. Um, the, so the, the stock market is really hard to make interesting, even on a podcast talking about a movie that's trying to make stock markets interesting. Right. So then let's delve over and talk about the social satire element of this movie, which is played out pretty heavily because uh, originally this film was supposed to have Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder playing the Dan Aykroyd and um, and Eddie Murphy roles. Would that have been interesting? You think that would have been as good a movie? 100% yes. That would have been just as good, if not better. Mm-hmm. Well, and Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, Wilder had already done films together. Uh-huh. And what was funny was I was reading some of the commentary when John Landis was working for the, the casting on this film. The studio hated most of his casting decisions. They didn't like Eddie Murphy and they thought Dan Aykroyd was done because he had actually just starred in Dr. Detroit. Apparently that had been one of his big starring roles and the film had flopped. And so the studio thought he was done because Dr. Detroit had flopped. Ironically, the next year, here comes Ghostbusters. Hold it for yeah, the story. Like he's, he's far from done, but what do they know? Right. They thought Jamie Lee Curtis had no mainstream appeal because at the time she was a screen queen. She had been in three Halloween movies. She was a horror movie actress at the time. So uh, very few of these casting decisions. And I think Eddie Murphy had only even just been on Beverly Hills Cop or whatever he had just been in. Well, he had the Saturday Night Live aspect that was kind of there too. So he at least had that. But yeah, I mean, and you have... uh... Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, who were, they would probably maybe appeal to an older demographic at that point, but certainly not maybe the kind of people that are Eddie Murphy fans. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder how many people even still know who Don Amici even is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were both, I mean, the both of them were Hollywood lifers at this point, right? I mean, they were very accomplished actors. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's funny, though, that Jamie Lee Curtis was seen as not having any mainstream appeal to this because, like you said, Halloween is basically it for her at that point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk today about, like, Nepo babies, you know? I was, you know, only months old when this came out, so I don't know what the, the conversation around around that was back then. I mean, were people really, oh, she's just, she's only here because of who her parents are, you know? Yeah, She's only here because of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis and that's it. Like, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe she is, maybe she's not. I don't know, but that she certainly is. She certainly had an advantage over other folks in the industry just because of her two very famous parents. Well, how you get to the top floor isn't as important as what you do once you get there, right? I mean, there have been plenty of people, as you say, those Nepo babies who wind up in a certain role and then do very well in the role despite that. You know, however they get in the door, they prove they deserve to be there. 
Well, and I mean, she certainly has proven it. I mean, what is she? She's done a lot and she's always been really good. The first thing I remember seeing her in and being like aware of who she was, even after seeing it was she was in My Girl in like 91 or 92 or something like that. Yes. That's the first thing I saw her in. And then a couple of years later after that, we had True Lies, Mm -hmm. which uh, I remember I wanted to see that in the theaters and my parents went and saw it and they came home and they were like, no, you can't see it because <laughs> not for kids. Uh, precisely because of Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh. Precisely because of that. And that, and I didn't know it at the time, but that's what they were. That's were, the part they were referring that's to. That's the part they were referring to was her dance in front of Arnold that, you know, she didn't know it was Arnold, but, but then I remember um, the clearance I got to see that movie was we were watching the Golden Globes the next year and she won a Golden Globe for that role. And, you know, they always show like a, a, a scene from the movie that they're nominated for. Yeah. Really showed the scene of her dancing where she's on the bedpost and she falls backwards mm-hmm. and lands on the ground because she doesn't know what she's doing. Doesn't know what she's doing, yeah. <laughs> and my mom was like, I can't believe they showed that scene. <laughs> okay, I guess you can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny you mentioned that because there was a feature ad I looked at where John Landis said that Steve Martin gave a review of this film, the same Steve Martin, and basically said that his review was, shh, shh, oh my God, Jamie Lee Curtis, who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know what he's referring to, and it's not her acting chops, I think. Not, unfortunately, because ironically, there are several scenes in in certain cuts of this film where obviously she's naked a few times. And ironically, she said that despite the reputation for horror films, this was her first movie, she said, where she felt kind of exploited for her looks. I mean, do you believe she got exploited a little bit in parts of the film? Yeah, I think some of, you know, we've talked about this before where there's nudity in movies and whether or not it's necessary or not and it doesn't really further the plot here so it's mostly it's mostly just for show Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. Well, and uh, speaking of Don Amici and some of his particular moral quirks with the film, uh, Heather does have a funny note about that. Yeah. So Don Amici was a really religious guy, and at the very end, when his character was supposed to say, when he was supposed to say him to a group uh, while his brother is having heart problems, Amici told Landis in advance that he would only do the take once and not a second time. He told the entire cast and crew before the take to lock in because he would not do it again. No take two. We got to get it right once. That, yeah. That's right. You you miss it and it's on you. Yeah. That's it's awesome. And, and not John, my fault. Landis tried to sell on him up. Well, you're not going to say it, but the Duke brother is going to be saying it. It's not you saying it. <laughs> right. It did not move Don, apparently. He he literally told the entire cast and crew, like, yeah, if somebody in here drops a cup, bad luck because I'm not doing, I'm not saying that word again. <laughs> You got one shot at it. Let's get it right. Right. Very, very much. What did you think about the humor in this film? Like both of you guys, scale of one to 10, like how funny is this film? You go. Um, I did not think this film was all that funny. I mean, there were huh. parts that were funny, but I did not by any means think it was hilarious. And actually this film kind of, uh, I told, I looked at Scotty like what, 30 minutes into it. And I said, I do not like this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Co- co-signed. She did. 100%. <laughs> I did. Because I was like, this is just pissing me off because all these old rich dudes are doing is screwing this guy's life up and he didn't do anything to deserve it. And Scotty was like, oh, so they've really made you feel for this guy. And I was like, well, yeah. And all it's doing is making me angry. (laughs) Which which is ironic because if you look at the way that Dan Aykroyd has played Winthorpe, you're not supposed to like him. You're not supposed to feel for him because he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. 
But he still didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. No, the whole plot of this movie revolves around lower class people being exploited for the entertainment of billionaires, Mm -hmm. which and this was 1983 and 40 years later, not a lot's changed. So (laughs) we're still (laughs) kind of seeing the same thing. But yeah, no, I get that. A lot of the humor in there is so that you're supposed to like laugh at everybody's misfortune and everything. And, you know, that might not be funny for some. So I get it. My favorite bits of humor in there are just the little random weird things that kind of pop in there. Yeah. Like the two the two dudes that are in the um in the cell with Eddie Murphy after he gets arrested. Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and did you see how they did you see how they're credited in the yes. it's credited as like black guy and even bigger black guy or something like yeah. that. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Kind and of and I, I I love the cause they they appear a couple other times in the movie and the guy still is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's just that's the mm-hmm. random weird dry stuff that I I think is is funny which to go to another movie with with Landis and um Dan Aykroyd was 3 years prior with the Blues Brothers yeah, the Blues Brothers is full of that kind of humor chock full of it yeah a yeah. dad movie you, you would dare say <laughs> yeah dad movie good call you know a lot of that doesn't really exist here and I think a lot of that too comes from the the fact that uh is this not do you think that this is I don't want to say a remake, but maybe a, a reimagination of um, My Fair Lady. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting point. It's, well, it goes back to one of those story devices we talk about when we look at storytelling. It's a fish out of water story. When you read a lot of, again, doing some comedy stuff, if you look at comedy writing, a pretty common story device in comedic writing is the fish out of water. You know, here's this person doing this thing they're not comfortable doing. Oh my gosh, can they handle it? So, uh, but jumping back to the jail cell for a second, Trevor, I don't know if you saw this in the notes, so you may have picked up on it. There's another- I saw it in the theater. I saw it when I was watching it. You thought immediately? Yeah. So there's a person in the theater- or during the movie um, in the jail cell. And he's actually right next to Eddie Murphy uh, while Eddie's going off on one of those like classic rants, you know, trying to sound bigger than he is. Like, well, yeah, my girl's coming to pick me up later. I don't even know what it's all about. <laughs> and the guy's just sitting there like with very weak shoulders, caved in. He looks almost sickly because he's so small and he's just kind of sitting there off to the side. And I'm like, dude, that guy looks familiar. Trevor, who is that dude? That would be Mr. Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Giancarlo Esposito. Yes. In what I believe was his first, uh, one of his first major movie roles, doing a completely anonymous role, standing next to Eddie Murphy in a cell and not saying a word. Did he have a line at all? I don't think he did. I think that's literally what his whole role was to stand there and make faces. Yeah. Because there's different, there's different levels of casting in different places you get casted from. If you have a, if you have a line and if you don't have a line. Right. So if he doesn't have a line, he could have just been sent there because they're like, oh, we need a guy that we need a guy that looks like this. That's going to just sit there like this. And they go, OK, how about how about you? You look like a weakling, Mr. Esposito. Why don't you get in there? Not knowing he would be. You would be you know, good at that. Yeah. Not knowing 30 years later, he'd be playing one of the most ruthless villains in television history. Right. And and then would do other very successful things. I mean, he was in uh, he's been in a lot of a lot of other very successful uh, promotions and shows. We saw Kaleidoscope with him on Netflix uh, even a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He good in that role i did well, like that, that the, the first thing i remember seeing him in that i was again aware of after i saw him or every time i saw him after that was he was in the usual suspects yes because he was the one that was talking to the guy i think he was the one that was interviewing the guy that had survived and had seen kaiser soze so he was the one giving him the the uh, information as to what he looked like so that we could get that gigantic reveal at the end of the movie right which we're a year away now from talking about <laughs> 
Well, and, and kind of jumping over to it too, in terms of the humor. So there was actually a fourth wall break in this movie too, which I don't know how common that would have yeah. been in movies at the time, but no, I, I, I meant to mention that it was perfect <laughs> because they were talking to him. Like he was, they were talking to him. Like he didn't know what he was talking about mm-hmm. and really talking stupid to him. And this, the glance yeah. that Eddie Murphy gives to the camera after that, like, are you here with these guys Give, like, gives him a full-on jim halper yeah he because totally yeah they're they're trying to explain like commodities trading to him and they're they're explaining it to him they've put little samples of things on the table like he doesn't know what they look like he's like yeah i already had breakfast yeah well and he said something like right so it's pork bellies which is used to make bacon which you could also find in a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich and Eddie murphy <laughs> just turns and glances at the screen like really they think i'm this stupid I mean that that was it's it's so out of place but like I said that's the kind of like that dry sort of humor that you see in some of this stuff that I, I think is so funny and when he did that I was <laughs> that that was one of my favorite moments of the movie was when he he gave that look mm-hmm. no that that part was was definitely entertaining yeah um, well Heather what was well in terms of funny the movie is it's a comedy movie was there a part that you did find funny that you laughed at a lot when they were on the train and they were trying to switch the briefcases. Yes. So I thought that scene was funny because they, they weren't very slick about what they were trying to do. And Jamie Lee Curtis's character, when she came in, she, she made me laugh trying to do uh, her bit, like with that accent. And what was she, what did she keep saying? So there's actually, this is actually pretty funny because I think it's one of those where the director gets a little flexible and makes something happen. That's pretty entertaining. So the original script, this is, there's some difference between what, IMDB said and what Jamie Lee Curtis herself said, the script apparently called for her to become, to be on the train pretending to be a German or an Australian. She says she was supposed to be German. The IMDB page said she was supposed to be Australian, but in either case, she couldn't do the accent. Mm -hmm. She could not do either accent. So John Landis said, well, what accent can you do? Uh And so she tried, so she said, I can do a Swedish accent. So they even notice it. She gets on the, on the train and uh, what is it? Dunham Elliott is like, "Uh, you're you're wearing lederhosen. And she's like, yeah, from speed and like they make a whole big <laughs> uh joking bit out of it but apparently the whole thing came about because jamie lee curtis could not do any accents that they expected her to do mm-hmm. so i thought that part was funny and i i like the part with the gorilla that was hard not to laugh at so it's funny you say that because as i'm watching this i'm like totally sold on the whole premise as mm-hmm. we're watching this and everything and then once we get on the train that's when the absurdity comes out yeah mm-hmm. and that's when it kind of it starts to lose me a little bit there mm-hmm. because it gets a little weird and the Too gorilla silly. yeah the gorilla yeah. thing was <laughs> and then they they put the guy in the gorilla suit at the end and he's like in the crate with the gorilla and they're like mm-hmm. oh look at these two gorillas it's like how do you not know it's a guy in a suit <laughs> <laughs> yeah quite a bit of plausible deniability oh, or not plausible geez. what's the word um What's the word? Uh, suspension, suspension of disbelief on, yeah. on the idea that oh yeah no that that that's just a the eye holes aren't there that that ape is just really sleepy. Yeah. Um, one of the things the studio apparently had an issue with. It's funny. Don't get me wrong. It, it's it's okay. one of the more funnier parts in the movie. I'm not I'm not saying that. It's you know from like uh, from a story standpoint and from like me buying into it kind of standpoint. Yeah. yeah. That's when it starts to wane a little bit. However, yeah. they earn it back and they earn it back big once we finally get to the stock floor. Because that scene is an editing masterclass. Mm-hmm. It is put together so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene was phenomenal. Yeah, no, well, and if I understand it right, a lot of the extras in the scene were actual stock traders doing their actual stock thing. The 
tension it creates and everything there from cutting back and forth between Dan Aykroyd and um, Eddie Murphy up to the Duke brothers and, you know, back and forth between all them. And then, you, I mean, a, a stock floor seems to be total anarchy, but I'm sure there's a everything's really well put together in those mm-hmm. in those environments. I've never been, but and I don't have right. any desire to see one of those. <laughs> seems like it would stress me out like nothing else. Yeah. Well, apparently um, now it's done on machine. So apparently well, now it's not that yeah. it's not that dude's throwing papers back and forth at each other thing now. Yeah. But everything they've done in that scene to, to create tension and then it kind of mm-hmm. climaxes towards the end. And when the brothers realize they're being had and when the bell rings and mm-hmm. they realize they've won somehow. Yeah. It's really, really, really well done. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. That scene is, is very well done. And it's pretty funny, too. Because, you know, watching the Duke brothers try to hustle across and get back in and take the books from the guy there. They're, the guy they sent into trade is so wiped out that somebody's like carrying him out over his shoulder. That part was actually yeah. very, very entertaining. <laughs> Although, again, I will say again, I have no understanding of how short selling works or why you're even allowed to do it. Because basically what you do is you borrow this, you borrow the money to buy the stock from somebody and then you pocket the difference when you sell it back at a lower price. It's a really weird dynamic. I still don't really even understand huh. how it works, but you know, that's what you're money podcaster for that's certainly not what we're here for <laughs> no we're not here to talk about shorts unless it's the big short and we're talking about a movie mm-hmm. and in that case we can talk about it but i yeah, it's, it's not or something the, i fully understand either or the shorts that jamie lee curtis was wearing in different parts of the film well <laughs> sure well dan Aykroyd did apparently call hers i think the quote i put here is the best rack in hollywood history which is i mean come on that's pretty rare air yeah that's uh rare air but uh you know in 83 that probably flies and <laughs> can't get away with saying that in 2020 oh no no somebody. no he says that yeah he says that now we gotta it's it's a it's a thing it's a whole thing can we take a second and talk about beaks because beaks like did you realize that he was essentially doing all of this stuff which essentially was espionage right like kind of spy work and they were paying him only fifty thousand dollars for this information that they were going to turn into millions and millions of dollars in profit that's just not a smart businessman no he got hosed yeah that was kind of a weird aspect to it it's like did he not realize what was going on or did he not fully understand the the whole weight of it i don't know yeah like yeah i don't know that That was a lot of sense to me yeah but you know it, it was still a it was still a fun character it was still interesting to see um, and again the studio according to John Landis again the studio only had two issues with this film when they saw the final release um, one was the was the gorilla thing they were like uh, John the gorilla is molesting a human being you realize that's what you're putting in there right oh. and John was like no it'll go by so quickly they won't even notice it and the second thing is Dan Aykroyd does actually don some blackface for this role like when he appears on the train He's on the train. And again, that's when you're like, dude, he's totally, he's seen your face because remember Beeks was in the original part of the original plot that got Winthorpe sent to jail. He saw his face. They saw each other. He knows what he looks like. So you're really going to show up in bad blackface pretending to be from Cameroon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's a little little weird. Another thing that wouldn't fly today in a movie. So speaking of the the train scene, did you catch a uh, future U.S. senator out there and a future former U.S. senator? In <laughs> yeah, I think Al Franken said he still gets checks for this movie. I'm sure he does. They're probably about a dollar now, but I'm sure he does. Yeah, yeah, it ain't much. But yeah, no, Al Franken has uh, he's one of the baggage handlers, isn't he? Yeah, he's right there at the toward the end as they're boarding the train, I think. Or maybe they're is he in the room with the gorilla? I can't remember. Uh, um, Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that stood out. And I guess, I don't know if that was his pre-SNL days. It was certainly his pre 
DC days. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. Um, well, speaking of uh, critical thoughts on the film, Roger Ebert, of course, one of our flagship film critics of the time, uh, gave this film three and a half stars. Uh, reading the review, I feel like it kind of leans into the social uh, social commentary side of things. But Heather, can you kind of mention what Roger Ebert had to say about that film? Okay. Trading Places resembles Tootsie, and for that matter, some of the classic Frank Capra and Preston Sturges comedies. It wants to be funny, but it also wants to tell us something important about human nature, and there are whole stretches when we forget it's a comedy and get involved in the story. And it's a great idea for a story. A white preppy snot and a black hustler trade places and learn new skills they never dreamed existed. Trevor, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he's he's spot on by like comparing it to Frank Capra and Preston Sturges. That's a pretty good one. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that certainly is in that wheelhouse. Because at the end of it, I mean, it does does kind of have a big sort of. I want to say it's got a big heart, but it you know there's a soul here, and uh, especially as he says, you know, they trade places and learn new skills they never dreamed existed. I mean, they're both going to come back to their you know. I mean, Dan Aykroyd is going to return to his life. Mm-hmm. It'll be a bit more appreciative of what he has, I'm sure. And Eddie Murphy, his character is is done with with that old day you know maybe he won't continue on in, in stocks or something but you know he's figured out how to better himself i guess you know yeah can you imagine the implications of if that happened today like we find out that uh, some major stock trading firm just pulled some dude off the street gave him a five minute lesson on how to trade stocks with a piece of bacon and next thing you know he's turning 10 and 12 percent return trades <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that would go over very well. Yeah, then we'd realize that it's not nearly as hard as they all make it seem, right? Huh. Maybe it's just guessing. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Some stockbroker is going to listen to our podcast and be like, actually, you guys, <laughs> did you pass your Series 7? I don't think so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, that's a that's a whole other conversation about the uh, good old stock market. But so kind of uh, wrapping up thoughts on the film, um, Heather, what did you think of the film just kind of as a whole? Obviously, we heard the feedback that you looked at me at one point and were like, do we have to keep watching this movie? But, you know, how about from there? So I was just happy that the movie like had a good ending and that Winthorpe and Eddie Murphy's character, like that they got the money they deserved and were able to like make a new life for themselves and they were able to take down the bad guys basically yeah the the billionaire class is the villains even 40 <laughs> years ago and they got they sure got taken down by the middle class that's sure, right sure yeah. why not because that's not? happy ending <laughs> and and, yeah. then, and only to be later put back on their feet very graciously by the prince of zamunda mm, there you go yeah <laughs> in case you guys don't know what we're talking about, uh, the Duke brothers do make an appearance in sort of a multiverse way. And uh, that is another John Landis film, isn't it? Coming to America was another Landis film later. Uh, I think so. I'd have to, I'd have to check. But so in another Eddie Murphy film, Eddie Murphy's character, the Prince of Zamunda gives a big old fat roll of cash to a gentleman sleeping on the street. And it turns out to be Don Amici who rolls over and he's like, Randolph, Randolph. And Randolph rolls over. I'm still not speaking to you, Mortimer. Randolph, we're back. <laughs> kind of a fun little nod that today would, of course, be part of a shared multiverse between two films. Coming to America, the sequel would have incorporated, you know, Trading Places 2 as well. <laughs> that have been our mashup film, our, our Avengers of Landis characters. Oh, Winthorpe would have absolutely like graduated off to like supporting liberal causes and and becoming a a, a major Democrat philanthropist. I, I think so. Well, let's get Dan Aykroyd to play that character now, and he probably wouldn't even know which way is up anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of gone off the deep end a little bit over the last few years or several right. years. <laughs> so, uh, so Trevor, on on the rewatch, Trading Places. Yeah, I think it uh, it, it still holds up. 
I think kind of got a little bit better appreciation for it just because maybe a little bit more aware of how these stocks and commodities work. Not much, but a little bit more. <laughs> Still couldn't explain it very well. I think it, it really does hold up over over the last 40 years. It's still humorous in its parts. And I mean, I really enjoyed it on the rewatch. And like mm-hmm. I said, it's been years since I've seen it. And I've probably only ever seen it all the way through one time. And, it, you know, it held my attention. It, it didn't bore me, which... <laughs> Cardinal sin. Cardinal <laughs> sin, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I liked it. Um, I don't know when I'll watch it again, but uh, yeah, it's certainly good. Yeah, without cable TV for us to kind of doom scroll through and find out. Uh, and find a movie to watch. It's kind of what it is now. Pretty much. Uh, I liked it on the rewatch again. I, again, I think it holds up very well also. I will say what's kind of funny is my first viewings of the film were on cable when the film was cut and then there were parts cut out of it for, for cable. I will say that I, I think most of what was added back in the version we watched later from Amazon, definitely a little different, a good bit more gratuitous nudity than I think would have been necessary uh, for a film. Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, I think stands out more to me the second time. And honestly, the only thing I would say is a small thing I noticed different is I felt like Eddie Murphy, like Billy Ray Valentine, Eddie Murphy's character goes through a transformation, like gets this experience, has that house party with his friends where he realizes that maybe this is a mindset just as much as it's a set of circumstances and decides to make his life better. But I don't really think that Winthorpe goes through the same thing because Winthorpe, honestly, whatever Duke brother said he would crash and burn was absolutely right because he did. He was getting ready to kill himself, Mm -hmm. you know, when everything broke in that direction. And essentially Valentine kind of came in and saved him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if anybody does go through that hero's journey. It's more the Eddie Murphy character than it is the Dan Aykroyd character. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that kind of closes the book for us on trading places. And uh, Trevor, so what is what is Computron have in store for us as we uh, update to the next year, hopefully to avoid the uh, the Y the the Y2K24 uh, bug coming yeah. up? Well, how about we do this? We want to close the book on the year and open a new chapter for next year. Mm-hmm. Why don't we hold off on what Computron's going to do? And we'll we'll have a look at that when we sit down and do our, our finalization on 23 and look ahead to 24. Sounds good to me. Okay, works for me. Well, folks, you heard the man. Uh, please check back. We'll have another episode drop in to kind of review our, our movies of 23 and look at what's ahead in 2024. Please don't forget to interact with us on our socials. We're so thankful for all the people who turn in to listen to us and uh, look forward to you having the opportunity to look at an old film with new eyes. 